Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, senior editor at Food & Wine, talking to you from my apartment in Brooklyn where things creak, radiators go off. That's life. The day after Vinny Ang was named as one of Food & Wine's 2019 Psalms of the Year, he said his thank yous for the accolade. Then he promptly announced that he was stepping away from the industry for a while to work on a political campaign. For those who know Vinny, this was not a surprise because the industry veteran has always made it his business to act with intention, infusing every act of hospitality with an eye toward making the world a more equitable place. He joined Communal Table to talk about the COVID relief efforts he's working on for the SF New Deal, explain what community organizing and mutual aid actually are, how he sees restaurants role in a more equitable future, and what has been feeding his soul throughout. Oh my gosh, Vinny, I am so happy that you are on the other end of the line. Tell me where you're... Hi, tell me about where you're sitting right now. Well, I'm at the other end of the country. <laughs> I wish there was less country between us. Oh, I'm I'm sitting in the dining room of my sweet little flat in San Francisco. Oh, my goodness. And I'm uh, going to start with a tough question. How are you holding up? As um as some of our friends like to say, I'm I'm COVID okay. <laughs> it really is a scale these days, isn't it? It, it really is. On a scale of one to COVID, I'm okay. Um, um, you know, I think I've, I'm help, healthy. I'm sheltered. Um, I'm fed. Um, I've got my cat. I've got my quarantine pod. I've got my essentials. What's your cat's name? Trouble. Oh, you've got some good trouble there. A Which lot of good trouble. A lot of hungry trouble. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that going around these days. So <laughs> so for folks, I want to uh, explain to folks a little bit more about who you are. Um, so I, and actually, let's start with our, our first meeting because you had been selected as a 2019 Food and Wine Sommelier of the Year. And uh, we got some interesting news the day after that happened. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so you, you kind of made a little bit of a, a life change, uh, right? Right in that moment. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had been in the industry for a good number of years, and um, um, deeply grateful for the acknowledgement from your colleagues and from the community. And um, you know, the the moment was right to sort of find and open the aperture about how I could be more impactful in my community. So, so right on the, um, the heels of, of being, receiving this incredible acknowledgement, which I'm completely grateful for, um, I took a, a role as a, a community organizer and a, a political uh, organizer um, here in San Francisco. And that is a leap from wine, but I I had also heard about sort of your work the whole time that you often used kind of wine as a nexus to get people together and talking. Well, right. I think um, one of the incredible things about wine is um, it 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 really invites the opportunity to to share something with someone and to 
engage someone in uh, an interaction. And so for me, for a lot of my career as a, a wine director, as a general manager, as an operations um, uh, manager, as a um, operations director was really just about how do we create a space for individuals to come together and collide in a, a way that's thoughtful and engaging and joyful and delicious. And um, wine for me was also really interesting because it captures a process um, around uh, growth and harvest and uh, technique and craft and, and also whimsy. Yes. Oh my, it's fun. Like there are so many fun wines out there and I think it's so easy to get caught up in this notion of it being this incredibly intimidating thing. And it should just, it should be a source of joy and fun. Well, you, you know, I think there's a reason why they, they call them wine libraries, right? Like yeah. every, every, every bottle is a sort of a book of stories. Um, the story of the 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 vineyard, the story of the winemaker, the story of the the producer, and more importantly, the story of each of the people that makes it possible for that wine to land in your glass in that at that table with uh, that group of friends or those family members. And um, I really took that to heart that the wine wasn't just the thing, but it was sort of a portal. You know, it was sort of an opportunity to sort of say, how was this made? Um, who makes it possible for me to enjoy this? Um, and more importantly, from a critical perspective, like why are certain stories and certain um, regions and certain producers uh, more prominent uh, and centered than others? And so oh. a lot of my um, sort of curation was really around like on the margins, so to speak, you yeah. know, um, not just the, the lesser known grape varieties, but like the less prominent um, voices in the, the wine world, particularly, you know, emerging voices of, of younger, newer producers and or um, regions that were underrepresented in quote unquote, the classical canon. Mm -hmm. Now that's go on with that. Cause that's, it's so important. I've, uh, you know, we have a, a story coming up and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I don't know if we're allowed to reveal this yet. If not, we'll, we'll cut it out. Um, but a, a profile of uh, Krista Scruggs, who is doing, you know, absolutely incredible work. And, you know, and she was talking about all the hands that go into the winemaking and, you know, and, and talking about, you know, she is a queer black woman who is, uh, you know, based in, in Vermont and getting a chance to, you know, talk with her about her story. Like, it's just such an important thing because I think probably for like every Krista, there is probably, there are probably so many other people who are making this incredible, thoughtful, like really, you know, intentional wine and, you know, and not getting their story told. And you were saying like, why are we not hearing from people? I'm like, oh, well, white, white supremacy, I assume. Well, it, it, um, the wine world is a very male-centered, Eurocentric, uh, white-gazing world. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really glad that you are taking this opportunity to lift up um, the story of how Krista ended up being um, one of the less than 2% of Black farmers in America yeah. own the land that they farm. And this is, this is not 
um, an exception. This is by design. And so when, you know, I took to building wine programs here in the Bay Area, um, I intentionally built my programs in a way that shifted the center of the conversation, uh, shifted the center of who is featured, mm -hmm. um, because these stories are not new. They've always been in community. Um, but unfortunately, um, by design and by structural um, limitations that are, are usually male imposed, mm -hmm. um, um, a lot of these stories don't get amplified and don't get shared or don't get validated. And so Krista is someone that I've been watching and proudly celebrating for many years now um, because foremost, she makes incredibly delicious cider and wine. Um, but more importantly, she, to me, embodies an ethos that is um, growing among um, our community of, of food and wine professionals. We realize that so many of the stories have been centered in the kitchen when, when, when so much of um, what goes into making it possible for us to eat and drink um, actually requires that we look at the larger food system. Yes. And so, you know, my my dear friend Shakira Simley, who I think you may be uh, familiar with, um, she is um, an incredible source of, of inspiration for me. And she and I were she and I were we were talking the other day, and she said we need to get uh, fewer we need fewer cooks in the kitchen and more hands <laughs> in the food system. And 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 what she means by that, which I think is so incredibly um, familiar now more than ever in, in light of COVID is that it really does take a whole system, a whole network of people to make it possible for us to eat and drink. Yes. There's so many in, invisible by design steps and, you know, and, you know, of course, you know, as a, as a food journalist doing a lot of reckoning about, you know, what, what haven't I highlighted before? What, you know, what work do I, I need to do now to show some of this? But there's, there have been so many hidden layers that, uh, you know, you, you wrote an incredible piece for uh, foodandwine.com about, you know, empathy and the food system. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's right there in the name of some of these things, like seamless, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, set up to, minimize interaction with people so you don't have to be confronted with the humanity of the people who are actually getting your food to your plate and that is just you know that is erasing faces voices stories humans and i think what we need to do is you know it's just like highlight those people more well and right so i I'm, I'm glad you used the word erasing because erasure is um endemic in um, the restaurant industry yeah. and um, truly um, mind-boggling to think that for so many um, iterations of this profession, we've allowed this erasure to be acceptable. Yeah. Or, or, or at least a lower priority than other um, uh, urgent matters. Mm -hmm. And so when that piece that you referred to was presented, we, 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 we came up with that in March of last year. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, it 
this was before George Floyd. This was before the national reckoning of um, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, um, that there are deep systemic issues and power imbalances in the food, in food systems, not just in restaurants, but in food yeah. systems um, that had been um, ignored or set aside um, because of a prevailing um, uh, ethos around the smoke and mirrors of, of yeah. what ho hospitality should be. The whole swan, the whole swan thing, and for folks who don't know what that metaphor is, it's like you're sort of seen gliding atop the water, and your legs are paddling furiously below the surface, and so never let them see you sweat, kind of thing. And it, and it's just making sure that the people who are you know in the space are not seeing the labor that is happening. Right, and so and and the thing about that this this labor component is that. Um, we um, it unfortunately perpetuates this idea that certain individuals who make it possible for us to eat, drink, and operate restaurants are disposable. Mm -hmm. And um, we have seen it so much more clearly because of COVID that um, sort of how truly um, unacceptable this is yes um that that after covid what the hope in our communities is is that we really a articulate the ways in which we have um been deficient in properly creating safe and supportive workspaces for everyone that makes it possible for us to operate a restaurant or to get grocery to a um a grocery store um and that we recover in a way from COVID that um, no longer allows these really, um, uh, these disparities to continue on. Um, you know, we, I mean, just look at the, the whiplash of um, shutting down and reopening <sighs> and whether the reopening is indoors or outdoors. Um, and even with you know, sort of a a sign of hope, right? Mm -hmm. Vaccines are being rolled out. That somehow st the structural response from government agencies across every level, federal, state, and local, um, have not been able to coordinate financial relief for workers to keep them sheltered in place before there can be administered vaccines. And, you know, it's it's troubling to me to think that, um, you know, we're reopening indoor dining rooms yeah. without a commitment to vaccinating the very workers who are being exposed um, to the possibility of not only COVID-19, but the various mutations of the virus. Um, um, and so in a way, we are undermining um, our collective effort to reduce and eliminate the community transmission of this disease. 
And it's on it's on several different levels too, because I can you know I can imagine if you're an undocumented person who has not been protected during all all of this time, getting no benefits, not having access to health care, and you know, and even if you're given the opportunity to come in and be vaccinated, why would you necessarily trust a government that hasn't you know done jack shit to protect you up to this point? That's exactly right. Um, sort of the the lack of coordinated response and um frankly the 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 lack of equity in response mm-hmm. has eroded the confidence of certain populations um in such a way that even when a government response has finally um uh, realize the potential to do a lot of good. Um, the trust isn't there to sort of show up for the solution. Yeah, and it's not just undocumented workers. It's it's the individuals who have already been infected with COVID mm-hmm. have recovered from COVID, right? And so, or, or the misinformation around masking, and so. You have the subset of individuals who may finally have access to um, vaccinations and then, you know, are questioning whether or not they have to continue wearing a mask in an indoor space. Um, and so it's it's quite a, a discombobulating experience to realize what we're really up against is the, the conundrum of, of living in a society where um we're conditioned to think that it's the individual responsibility to figure out how to cope with this very overwhelming situation that we all find themselves in when in fact what truly matters and and it, it's my deep belief is that the way out of here is that we have to build a collective approach we have to understand how our um our actions and our behaviors contribute and or are detrimental to the well-being of the collective, of the community. Yeah. And especially since we're living in a time when it's been the notion of freedom has been weaponized in that you know, there's been messaging for, you know, a, a you know a goodly long time now that somehow uh, it is uh, like something is being taken away from you. As opposed to you being part of a collective, if you are not just operating with your own interests at heart, you know, it's, it's been sort of said, oh, well, then you're a socialist. Well, then you're a, you know, you're a, you know, whatever it happens to be just for giving a crap about the well-being of, you know, your fellow man. It's, it it is absolutely baffling to me who are uh, people who are trying to assert that their freedom is being taken away from them if they are being, you know, asked to wear a mask. It, it uh, you know, it, and the way that that sort of message has been, you know, sort of weaponized and profited off is, is, uh, it just, you know, mind boggling to me. And, you know, and as, as you well know, I feel very, very strongly about this, you know, having lost my mother to COVID. So I, you know, and I think, people are inconvenienced by having to wear a strip of cloth across, you know, over their face. 
and well, they're not tying it to a person to the well-being of a person or to a people or to a community yeah and i i do want to take a moment to just acknowledge and how deeply sorry i am for your lost cat oh yeah. you've 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 been so so kind to me and i'm i'm just you know you you just eternally are and you're on my mind a lot and and it's really been heartening to me to see you know the actions that that you have taken um and i want to you know, so very early on, you were doing, and you know, and you continue to be doing this community organizing, and so I, I think that there are, you know, some people who, you know, obviously people have been doing this for a very, very long time, and there are communities where, you know, sort of mutual aid and community support have been endemic since the beginning because nobody else was freaking helping them. Um, but to some people, it's a you know a newer notion. And if can we unpack a little bit about what mutual aid and community organizing are? Sure. I think. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to sort of share. You know, shortly after the first shelter in place here in San Francisco, um, a few like-minded individuals from the food industry realized um, that uh, something needed something needed to be done, something needed to happen yeah. um, to support the most vulnerable in our community. Um, this notion of mutual aid is really um, important because um, it, it is sort of acknowledging that you are a helper and can support someone in need in your community um, as an act of solidarity, um, not an act of charity, but an act of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And mutual aid has always been a tool for communities to take care of themselves and to keep each other safe um, because uh, government systems are not always built to reach everyone. In fact, a lot of government systems are built with exclusion in mind. Yes. And so where mutual aid comes in is to fill the gaps where government and other sort of institutional systems um, fall short, whether by design or by default. And so um, I, I was really fortunate. I got in touch with... Um, a small business owner by the name of Lenore Estrada. She uh, runs a, a small bakery here in San Francisco called Three Babes Bake Shop. And Great in March name. last year, um, she had to lay off 23 employees. Oh, God. At, right at the shelter in place because she realized, like many food operators did, that there, there was no cash flow to sustain um, the ask that the government was making for businesses to stop their economic activity. And um, this was really uh, so devastating for her and for so many other operators who um, are probably familiar with the notion of, you know, calling your employers in. Um, if you're lucky enough to have enough cash on reserve, cutting a check for two weeks notice um, and giving them their COBRA paperwork in hopes that maybe those workers have set aside some money to pay for the COBRA fees. Which are so expensive. Oh my God. To keep their health insurance going during a pandemic. Yeah. And so Lenore was like, this is really messed up. And um, we, you know, I need to figure out how to support my community right now. And so 
you know, by, by the good grace of a, a another community member, um, uh, Lenore was able to raise some money to 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 start a community feeding program, where we paid local small restaurants ten dollars a meal, and we used those meals and distributed them to neighbors in need. Um, and so that was in March of last year, and we're now approaching March of this year. We're, oh, we're now God. approaching uh, yeah. one year, our mm -hmm. one year anniversary. Um, we are a bona fide um, organization with paid employees. And what is it called? It's called SF New Deal, San Francisco New Deal. And we'll have um, links to this in, in the show notes so oh, people can find you too. You're so very kind. And um, SF New Deal, um, in the 11 months that we have been operating, now supports nearly 200 small businesses wow. um, in San Francisco. Um, and we've distributed um, over $16 million uh, to the partners uh, that we work with. And we've distributed over 1.6 million meals throughout the city and county of San Francisco. I've got full body goosebumps right now and I'm, I'm tearing up. Because of course you did this. This is the, well, the human I'll, who you are. You're you're very kind. I I am merely um, a connector and facilitator and a catalyst. I, I will say that what made what makes our effort possible is the wisdom of our community. So mm -hmm. the other the other foundation of of this sort of what I call community intervention mm -hmm. is that there is wisdom that already exists in the community to support the people who are closest to need. Yes. And so what community organizing to me is, is um, uplifting the wisdom of individuals in the community to advance solutions that center the communities that are most impacted by the challenges at hand. So, um, you know, I, I have this quirky little saying, where, which is in COVID, if we solve this moment for those who are closest to need, we will solve this for everyone. Mm. And in thinking about and reimagining what food systems look like and reimagining the relationship of the worker to um, and, and labor to industry, we have to center the worker. We have to center the labor to understand how these spaces, when they operate post COVID can be safer, healthier, more dignified spaces for everyone that walks through the door, not just the guest and can not just the general manager and not get, not just the restaurant partner or the owner, um, that we all have, um, a shared responsibility in how we treat each other, because how we treat each other when things are really rough is a clear indication yeah. of how we should be treating each other when things are flush and abundant. Can you explain uh, the levels of what safe means? Well, um, safety, you know, I think sort of I've been reflecting a lot on what's happening in Texas this week. Yeah. And and the conditions that have led to very unsafe um, dynamics for a lot of individuals, not only in Texas, but the surrounding states that are being mm -hmm. walloped by 
extreme snow uh, storms and cold weather. Um, that you have millions of people who are um, who have had their access to electrical power interrupted. So imagine how individuals that rely on um, oxygen tanks, heart monitors, other things that require um, electricity to maintain their physical health feel right now in this moment. So safety is a feeling. Um, is this a whole body? Yes. And for a lot of people who have had their power shut off because of the snowstorm, this moment is not a full body yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think about when I think about safety. Um, when I think about what a workplace that feels safe is, you know, um, restaurant workers who are being called back to work before having access to vaccinations. Yeah. Does that make them feel safe at work? Is it enough that they are double masked and wear um, gloves? It may not be enough for some individuals to feel safe enough to return to work. Right. Um, or it may not matter because they probably feel the economic pressure of the time. Um, imagine being an essential worker, a farm worker, a farm hand, being told that you're essential but not treated like you're essential. Yes. No access to social insurance, no access to paid sick leave, no access to um, mobile vaccination because the only way to sign up for an appointment is to hit refresh on one website. Um, uh, if, if your work is out in the field for 10 hours a day, which is the, the standard work day for many farmhands across this country, mm -hmm. um, you don't have the luxury of sitting in front of a computer refreshing for a vaccine appointment slot. And if you're in a rural area, you might not even have uh, the, the broadband or the kind of connection or cell service that would allow you such a thing. Or you may not have four hours of paid sick leave mm -hmm. to take off of work to drive to the nearest vaccination clinic. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk around equity and inclusion and diversity. Um, and I think what COVID continues to reveal is that we have focused too much of these equity, inclusion, and diversity efforts on hiring the right demographic for the right position within an organization. That, that the real foundational equity work the real foundational racial equity work, the real foundational gender equity work, the real foundational disability equity work is creating spaces both in the workplace and in the community where everyone feels safe. Yeah. Because it is costly. Uh, like the lack of safety is... Um, is a huge expense. And, you know, for operators out there who are like, well, I don't know if I should invest in this. Imagine what your costs are for retaining staff. Imagine yes. what your costs are for turnover of staff. Imagine what your costs are for the lawsuits and the, the potential liabilities that you have for operating a space 
where individuals don't feel safe or individuals are uh, subject to bullying or harassment, it's all connected. And I really do think the frontier for diversity, equity, and inclusion work in the food industry and just in society writ large is this conversation around um, dismantling uh, racism in workplaces, dismantling white supremacy among the leadership, dismantling Im implicit bias uh, among the individuals who control resources. Um, you know, uh, it's it's manifest. We see it. We see it now at um, uh, you know what 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 were once vanguards in the media establishment, like Bon Appetit. Um, that it's not enough to fire one problematic person. Right. It's like firing one problematic person doesn't dismantle the institutions that have made um, other employees want to leave the workplace, like want to exit the company. And so the real work isn't in hiring um, someone who is uh, a person of color or uh, a, a non-male identifying gender in a leadership role. That's not enough. We call it, you know, I think they call that like a glass cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, this individual is hired, um, um, like Ashton Berry likes to say, identity is not a credential. And so what, what Wait, sorry, I missed that. I missed that last word. Uh, sorry. Identity is not a credential. So your identity, uh, your, I love that. Your identity <laughs> as a, a woman is not a credential enough to say that this workplace is no longer um, unsafe for other women. Hiring um, a black executive is not enough to, to show that a workplace is safe for all blacks in, uh, in your work setting. And, but, but unfortunately, where diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts have really been um, focused on is in the right hire, the quote unquote, the right hire. Yeah. But um, safety, like equity, um, has to be represented in multitudes. And it feels like safety and opportunity and, and training as well to give people, I, cause I, you know, I see, you know, all different kinds of workplaces falling into this. Oh, well, we can't, you know, hire so-and-so because they don't have the right experience or something like that. You can redefine what the right experience is or, you know, hire somebody who, you know, who, you know, feels right, just hasn't had those opportunities and do the work of training them. And supporting them and not just, I see people get set up to fail in, uh, you know, in some of these positions and it's just going to be self-perpetuating until, you know, people can get hired in, in positions and supported and trained and, uh, you know, and, and that particular workplace also sort of reevaluates what they, you think is needed out of a position. Well, I think, um, it's not just training. It it is a real like um, we have to establish a meaningful system of accountability where 
prior harm has been acknowledged. Yes. Yeah. So you can't just sort of pick up and move forward without acknowledging the harm that needs to be repaired in a community. And so a lot of the um, mutual aid and community intervention work that happens during crisis, whether it's a snowstorm that causes mass electrical outage in Texas or um, relief efforts due to a hurricane or um, growing food insecurity due to COVID-19 and it's adjacent, the adjacent impact of economic distress. Um, a lot of mutual aid and community intervention work is about interrupting a cycle of harm mm-hmm. before, before people experience trauma and violence so that that trauma and violence is not transferred to someone else. Yeah. Hurt so when people, people hurt people, as they say. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. And so in COVID, what we've seen and what so many individuals that have been organizing at the ground level have been pleading for is just, you know, a structural systemic provisioning for the essential needs of everyone. Everyone. Every single person deserves housing. Every single Mm -hmm. person deserves food. Every single person deserves access to clean water. Every single person deserves access to um, shelter. Every single person deserves access to testing Mm -hmm. for COVID. Every single person deserves access to choose whether or not they they feel comfortable being vaccinated. So what 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 mutual aid and community organizing and community intervention is is increasing accessibility. And like accessibility is such an important part of building healthy, vibrant, collective focused communities. So I'm I'm curious at well, a couple of different things um, with all of this because you and I have had many discussions along the way about uh, well we haven't put it specifically in these terms but we talk a lot about mental health and the you know and the impact of it and now I mean that that is going to be the third wave the fourth wave whatever you know whatever wave we're on of this uh, pandemic. Because I think so many people have been in survival mode um, this this whole time and just staving off the, the horrifying emotional impact that people have had from fear, from grief, from trauma that is, uh, you know, some of these things were, you know, present before the pandemic. Some of them were exacerbated by it. Some of it, some of them were brought on by the the isolation and and you know and and the death of of all of this and we're going to have an absolutely huge reckoning um i think coming forward because people have just been in i, I have a dear friend who is a frontline worker at a hospital and she won't take time off because she's i think 
of, sorry to speak for her. I love this woman so much um, that because I think she's afraid if she took a break and comes back, uh, she'll, that you know that she'll break because she'll have to she'll have to stop and reckon with what has happened. And I'm wondering what you are seeing in this mutual aid and in this community support. What is being done to support the mental health of people who have been through all manner of traumas during this, whether it's COVID related, whether it is you know racial reckoning, whether it is you know you know just the the isolation of it. What are some of the structures that you're seeing um, have seen that have been effective? Um, I think um, there have been. Uh so many angels that have held space for um, for acknowledging grief. Um, there are a number of mutual aid organizations in in and around the the country that where people have said, uh, "I have an ear to bend." Um, I think that's really important um, for individuals to have the safe space to feel that they can share how they're being impacted by this moment without judgment and without reprisal. That's, that's one effective tool. It's just, you know, for individuals who may be listening, who, who may be holding space for a number of individuals, whether they're family members or coworkers or colleagues or peers or cohorts, um, really normalize, um, sharing the the names and phone numbers of individuals who are, whether they're chaplains or trained psychotherapists or peer counselors or, or, or warm hotlines, you know, a number of states run warm peer, peer run hotlines um, that you can call and have an, um, uh, just have someone acknowledge your experience. That's really important. You know, one thing that I think about a lot about COVID is that it this experience for many people isn't just a flashpoint. It isn't just one moment of trauma. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 sustained a sustained level of hyper awareness around uncertainty. Yes. And you know, uh, just shortly after the insurrection um, on January sixth, the day that will live in infamy. <laughs> Um, uh, Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez did a Instagram live where she watched that. Yeah, where she recounted her experience and you know um, about feeling unsafe. And one thing that she said, um, and and you know I paraphrase because she was paraphrasing from someone else um, about sort of her understanding of trauma. Um, for her, uh, she had sort of referenced a definition where trauma is defined as too much, too fast, too soon. And so, you know, we are nearly 11 months into, 12 months into uh, a, a national pandemic. And it's for, for many individuals that we love and for even more individuals that are not familiar to us, They've had this experience of too much, too fast, too soon for 12 months. That's not sustainable unless you acknowledge it and provide assurances to individuals who may not have agency, who may not have loved ones, who may not have a savings account, who may not have health insurance, 
who may not have housing, who may not know where their next meal is coming from. And so, again, the purpose of organizing in community is bringing awareness to where the resources are, cataloging in a collective systemic matter where the needs are, and then matching the resources to the needs in a way that is regenerative, that is restorative, that is not punitive, um, that is not a form of charity per se, but a form of solidarity, so that I can go to someone tonight, I can say, hey, you matter to me, you being in community matters to me, I don't know you, but I love you, I want you to stick around because you have something to offer, I want to give you a, a hand up. It's not a handout. It's a hand up. Yeah. So you never know when you might be in that situation as well. And I think there are so, so many people who couldn't, you know, I periodically think like, okay, a year ago today, what was, you know, if I walked out onto the street, like, you know, take the me from a year ago, and walk out in the street and think like, what the hell is happening here? You know, and especially when the streets of Brooklyn were just empty except for sirens and, you know, and you see somebody there wearing a mask, you would wonder, what have you been dropped into? And, uh, and, and sort of realizing like, you know, I'll have moments periodically where I'll think like, oh my gosh, you know, why am I not feeling like I'm operating at my best or whatever I'm realizing like, oh, because it's just been thing, you know, thing after thing after thing. And I'm an incredibly privileged person who's having that. And you know, and I know how hard it's been for me to be able to ask for help. And, and I'm thinking if you're organizing and people are, you know, engaging in mutual aid, does that make it a little bit easier for people to accept help if it is not stigmatized? I think people are more inclined to receive help when the help is coming from someone that they trust. Yeah. Someone that... Um, very clearly signals, I see you as whole, regardless of the level of need you're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that's been really fascinating about food security, food access, food apartheid, is that there are a number of hunger relief initiatives that are less responsive to feedback. And this is um, troubling to me because even if you're being offered food because you're in need, you should not be muted. You should be able to say, hey, um, this is past the sell-by date. I yeah. just want to make sure it's safe for me to eat this. Or, you know, the the the... the the ways in which we have to re-examine food relief in this country, yeah, even pre-pandemic, about what we're feeding the most hungry in our in our in our country, um, where you know, a lot of food relief solves for both reducing waste from um, national food distribution systems, which may not necessarily advance healthy outcomes for certain yes. communities. Yes. And it might not be the food, you know, from that particular culture. And that's, I mean, having the, the food, like culturally appropriate food, 
is so important as well for for continuity of, of of community and dignity and history and and all of these reasons um the you know the things that you might have you know with which to cook in your kitchen if you do in fact have access to a stove which not everybody does you know you you might not know how to cook a particular thing or have those recipes if, if just like weird whatever scraps are given to you it should be the food that you know that makes you feel connected in all the different ways that that means. And, you know, and I know that is not always prioritized. Right. And, you know, I do see glimmers of hope, you know, they've extended pandemic EBT. Um, the federal government is, uh, has extended the program to just give individuals who are food insecure, um, money to spend on food as, as they, they're, they're more, uh, able to determine how they want to feed each other. Yeah. Um, but, you know, truly, we can't think of food relief as um, shoring up caloric intake. That's not enough. Right. right. We, we are, and especially at the, at the very onset of COVID, we saw the comorbidities that um, existed in the Black and Latino communities. Yeah. And, you know, the, these, the structural racism that exacerbates um, uh, disparities and health outcomes in those communities um, is amplified um, not only in uh, hunger, but in, you know, we look at the data where um, Latinos continue to be disproportionately, uh, uh, have disproportionately higher rates of infection. Mm-hmm. And then the, the deaths due to COVID tend to be um, higher among Blacks and Latinos. And on top of that, we look at the maps of vaccine distribution, oh, God. the vaccinations yeah. that have already occurred, you know, the, the, the maps of, like in New York, the maps of the boroughs of where uh, the highest vaccinations have occurred is the inverse of the maps of the boroughs with the highest infection rates of COVID. So um, if that's not a clear indication of the, 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 the disparity in an equitable uh, access to vaccinations, you know, I, I, I don't know if there are any more clear indicators than that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've been, you know, obviously watching it in, in New York and I'm, you know, I'm going to wait my turn. I am, I did that New York times, like, where are, where do you fit into the like vaccine queue? And I'm like, I'm the last or second to last in line. And I'm like, you know what? I'm lucky enough to be able to work from home and everything like that. So, you know, it makes sense, but I've heard of so many people like jumping the queues and going to, uh, you know, neighborhoods. There was a particular like church in Harlem where a lot of white people were just like walking on in, taking the slots, taking those vaccines. And, and, uh, and it's so gross to me, this opportunism that has arisen around there. And I have no doubt that there are, you know, wealthy people pulling strings to be able to, you know, jump the queue and get the vaccines. And, you know, until we sort of, reckon with this sort of system of an you know entitlement with with all of that i'm you know i you know i keep saying i'm not going to rest easy i never rest easy (laughs) another i don't know if either one of us ever rest easy about you know about things but it's you know i i keep being newly appalled by humanity 
and uh, just finding really fresh ways to do it. When I sort of heard that somebody was trying to give a friend of mine a hot tip about where you could go and get a vaccine. And he was like, fuck, no, no, that's just the wrong thing to do. And yet, well, so, so Kat, what I would encourage you to to, to take a moment and, and, and sort of step back for a second. And Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, acknowledge your friend that said, hell no, it's not the ethical thing to do. Um, But don't um, place the accountability solely on the the bad actor. There's a very specific choice here, the decentralization of the distribution of the vaccine. Yeah. uh, Means that systemically, it's just easier for individuals to um, bend their ethical and moral boundaries to justify um, securing a vaccination. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't fault individuals who are so anxious that they feel like they're going to find a way to justify the choice that they're going to make. When truly the accountability that we need to take is on a systems level with our local government, our state government, and our federal government. And to say to those policymakers, like, You've really set this up so that, like, we as individuals are questioning each other. Mm -hmm. You're eroding the trust among community members by not taking the responsibility that you have as a civil servant to deliver community-wide outcomes that advance equitably the health of the most vulnerable in our communities. So this is no different than the accountability that's long been missing in the restaurant industry and in food systems. We're so focused on um, um, blasting the latest sort of scandalous um, uh, uh, bad actor that we, we see the tree, but miss the forest. Yeah. No, thank you for that reframing. Is that, you always teach me things, and I appreciate that about you. Well, you're you're you all you've always known this, Kat. But I think you know what COVID has really taught us is that we have to uncondition ourselves from what was before COVID, mm-hmm. and that you know COVID is also like um um oh I forget the author. There's this incredible Indian author that that calls this moment a portal. Arundhati Roy, is that? Oh yeah. You know, that she she very in in a piece that she wrote, she says this is a portal and we we get to choose. Like we get to really choose what we're stepping into. And so we we get to decide what real safety looks like for our community. We get to decide what equity looks like for our community, we get to choose to acknowledge that reparations to Black Americans are long overdue. We get to decide how we respond to the rising uh, tide of anti-Asian violence, not as a wedge issue against other communities of color, but an opportunity to build further solidarity with black and brown communities 
and to say that exclusionary practices are codified. Racism is codified into the fabric of America. We have to undo legislation. We have to undo judicial rulings. We have to undo mass incarceration. We have to undo over surveillance. We have to undo and end police violence. Those are not the solutions that are going to bring and end violence and hate in our communities. And so, um, and, and the reason that these um, issues matter in the restaurant industry is because most of the labor that the industry is reliant on is disproportionately black, queer, female, Asian, um, lower income. That's why it's important to abolish the sub-minimum wage. That's why it's important to establish a $15 minimum wage. That's why it's vital that we um, continue to agitate for universal health care that isn't tied to employment. These are, these are all ways in which we've codified um, division among different community groups. You know, I forget, I, was it Toni Morrison who says that racism is a distraction? And so what happens when structural and systemic racism is manifest into our communities, our workplaces, our relationships, is that we pit one group against another yeah. and we become the tools of white supremacy. And so, you know, the reframing that, uh, you know, that is, is really just a reminder as Helen, uh, as, as Grace Lee Boggs says, to reimagine what's possible. We have to so, reimagine what's possible. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about sort of on a, on a practical level and, and this reimagining what is possible and say, if somebody is listening to this and they are reopening their restaurant, they're opening a new restaurant, something is happening. Like what are the structural things that they could, these, the practical structural things that they could do at their restaurant? Uh, and, you know, and I always just have to bring it back to restaurants because, you know, the, I work at food and wine and this is the part of, of the website for that. If somebody wanted to, you know, enact all of this in their restaurant, what 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 do you envision? How does that work? What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like um, <coughs> accountability for past harm. I think that looks like repair for harm done. And I think that looks like uh, shared collective commitments around who we uplift um, I think it looks like a restructuring of access to financial resources. I think it looks like debt and rent forgiveness for small business operators that have been operating since March without much relief. I think it looks like holding policymakers accountable for not doing enough. For, for the lip service that has been paid to the vitality and um, uh, uniqueness of small business operators, 
the federal government has still not done enough. Operators don't need more loans. No. They need they need cash. Um, I think that looks like a commitment to ensuring that the essential needs of every single person is provided for long after the pandemic. I think it looks like um, a program to undo the disproportionately high joblessness rate among women due to COVID because of distant learning and other burdens of, of, of childcare that unfortunately have landed mostly with women. The number of women who have exited the workplace and the workforce who have interrupted their professional journeys because of COVID, you know, we've really set back the progress we've made um, in with gender equity, especially among Black, Latino, and Asian communities. Um, the net loss is carried by women of color. And so those are just a few things that I think about and a few ways in which people can find a way to organize, you know, um, there's no one solution to this, but I think what everyone needs, what I hope everyone takes to heart is that, um, you know, they do an assessment of their community. They identify the people who they think are closest to need and they organize to make sure that those individuals have the resources they need to recover and catch up with others who have been more fortunate. Yeah, I think bringing it back to just that human level of looking somebody in the eye and asking them, how, how are you doing? What do you need? Is a powerful thing. And we've, I, been, we've been operating in isolation. Well, I would, I would, I would even say, um, what do you need? How can I help? Yeah. I, I yeah. wouldn't I, I would say like reserve the how are you doing um until after you've built some trust with the individual, you know? Yeah. Because uh what do you need and how can I help are more actionable than how are you doing? Right. Yeah. How are you doing may assuage some of you know your individual sort of um uh, guilt around suffering that exists in proximity to you. Mm -hmm. But I think the questions we need to ask her are, 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 must be actionable. So what is, what is the thing you need? Yeah. What, what, what do you need? How can I help? Here's what I have to give you. <laughs> is that, is that a valid thing? Here are the things I have. I mean, because it, it can be really amorphous and it can be, again, hard for some people to accept anything. Well, I think, you know, you start a conversation and then maybe you follow up with, I have X, Y, and Z available. Would any of this be helpful to you right now? Like, it, it could be as simple as, like, you reaching out to a friend who's been out of work for six months saying, like, is there an introduction I can make on your behalf? Mm -hmm. Can I look over your resume? Can I buy you lunch? Can I get you groceries? What's the one thing you haven't um, indulged in that you used to before COVID that you're, yeah. you feel too, you know, like, it's like, 
it's it's the, those little um, moments of of um, resourcing. They add up. Yeah. And those for moments, some, it can be really liberating. Those moments when you get to feel like a person and feel like yourself. <laughs> feel connected to something feel and actually let's bring it back to the moment when we did actually meet um because i i had uh you know been aware of you because of of you know you were a sum of the year and i was so impressed that, uh, you know with the career turn you made but then we finally met in person at the food and wine classic in aspen and just immediately started talking and you you gave me a very valuable thing that i use to this day when i need to feel uh you know connected and and rooted in things even during this time of isolation you taught me how to hug trees and communicate with trees <laughs> and it is the most uh you know, gentle and uh and and beautiful thing and i you know and i i and I have taken to doing this if I see, you know, and I feel like, okay, are people going to be staring at me or not? <laughs> so I tend to do it uh, in, in kind of private places. But you, you taught me how to, when I feel, you know, feeling, you know, isolated or something like that to go and actually physically put my arms around a tree and, you know, draw from it uh, that that energy and to know that the roots are interconnected in deeper ways than I could ever imagine and now i think of it as sending a tree mail <laughs> i think i've texted you that a few times but i didn't know i needed that and you gave it to me well i'm 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 glad that um you continue to explore that tool yeah. um it's 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 such a simple way to just um i think for those of us that have um that struggle with anxiety often yeah are always looking for tools yeah. <laughs> yeah. to remind ourselves that we can interrupt the cycle of anxious thoughts. And, you know, I, 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 you know, whether it's, um, touching, uh, an, uh, an herb or smelling, uh, a piece of, of eucalyptus leaf or drinking a glass of ice water, you know, when, again, back to the idea of like a full body, yes. Um, give yourself an ex experience that, that returns yourself back to the security of your five senses, whether it's sight, sense, touch, smell, auditory. You know, trust your body. Your body knows. It does. And it surprises me with that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I've been trying to listen to it when it tells me I need to sleep. I need to not fight it when it's <laughs> when it's doing that. I I think we often override we often override our the signals from our body. I mm -hmm. the, the mind is a powerful instrument. It's an incredibly complex um instrument. But so is the body. Yeah. And so, you know, um what you're thinking may not always be what should be, even though it wants to be that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
Yeah, it, it's it, you know it's it's been doing some curious things and uh, you know, and so I you know I've I've taken to putting reminders out in the world to telling people to like stop clenching their job, but mostly I'm telling myself <laughs> that. Oh, I, I I have timer set on like you know three thirty three or two twenty two or one eleven. I'm an eleven eleven girl myself. <laughs> God bless that Rufus Wainwright song. Um, I think you a part of the reason for that is also like developing um, a habit of intentional intentional behavior. A lot of our thoughts are unintentional, right? I, mm -hmm. I unintendedly did X, Y, and Z. And sometimes a random walk through the neighborhood is refreshing. But I think there's value in also setting an intention and, and creating space for um, what I call the discipline of hope. What's hope? that? <laughs> well, you don't just happen upon hope. I think you have to be really focused on producing outcomes that express the hope that you carry in your life, whether it's the hope for your relationships or the hope for your professional career or the hope for your community or the hope for a more perfect union in America, those things don't happen. And this is the beauty that I find in community organizing is it takes a lot of discipline. It's a lot of people um, sort of think that organizing is very mysterious, but it's really just a bunch of spreadsheets. <laughs> like literal organizing. Like literally merge cells wrap text <laughs> border thickness share file <laughs> make it sound so glamorous oh it's it's just it's it there's beauty in the mon mundane uh, aspects of organizing <laughs> but but truly like you know I, I think that's why something like Marie Kondo is so appealing it gave people a way to be disciplined about releasing themselves from the the tyranny of hoarding <laughs> <laughs> yeah i need to revisit that <laughs> so you know um apply just even an ounce of discipline into your potion of hope cat and um, <laughs> you'll 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 find trees you you've never even noticed from previous walks I'll, I'll give them your love too. <laughs> please do. Please, please do. So if it's okay, I'm going to ask you some questions that I ask every guest. I've been very much looking forward to this portion of the, the conversation. Well, the first one is something that is so, I'm going to ask you something so uncharacteristic of you. And I ask it because I feel like if you say these things out loud, it means somebody listening can help you get there what is the selfish thing that you want for you? You take care of, like, clearly you take care of so many people. What's the thing you want for you? <sighs> That's like a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a tough question. You know, I, I'm looking forward to... Like building a family. Hmm. That's something I've been thinking a lot about. And just 
I'm really looking forward in the next, in this current phase of my life of, of nesting and, and building family. I love that. Well, lucky family that's going to be. Have you ever cried in the walk-in? Where haven't I cried? <laughs> I've cried on trains. I've cried on buses. I've cried in the pillows. I've cried <laughs> in basements. I've cried in wine cellars. Crying <laughs> is cathartic. I would encourage everyone to develop a healthy relationship to releasing your emotions through tears. Oh my God. I ugly cried to a friend last weekend at a safe distance, but oh my God, like, my, my body felt so much better. Like ugly, delicious cry. It was, uh, I mean, I had something I needed to get off my chest and I expressed it and it just felt like I felt boneless after it and it was well received. So I needed to say to somebody like, Hey, I love you. I'm not getting enough from you. And, uh, message was heard and you know it was it was a really it was very generous of this person to like watch me you know in this really vulnerable state <laughs> so yay crying uh, uh, yay release yeah percent uh, support it yeah so what is your comfort food my comfort food um it's okay if it's wine <laughs> no um it's not wine um, my comfort at the moment is garden creamery ice cream. What is garden creamery? Garden creamery, and I may make some enemies by saying, <laughs> is one of the best um, San Francisco ice cream shops. Mm. They make all of their bases from scratch. So the ice cream base itself is made from scratch. And they have these exquisite, delicious flavors. Like I just had a pandan coconut mm. ice cream from them. That is insane. Mm. Um, and the last time your colleague uh, Kushbu was in town, we had like warm mochi topping uh, on top of uh, ice cream cones when it was safe to, oh to eat in those. And they just have the most exquisite flavors um, they do like a, a delicious plum, a delicious Thai iced tea flavor when it's, uh, in stock. Um, it's been incredibly hard to get during COVID <laughs> they only do pre-orders and they like open the orders like once a week at like seven o'clock on like a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and you're there with your finger on the button. Well, by the time I get there, like 90% of the flavors are sold out, but whatever pints I do get my hands on, are completely worth it. So- <sighs> I just, the next time you're in the Bay Area, we're going to Garden Creamery and we're going to have all of the flavors, Kat. I am hitching my wagon to Kush Boo and <laughs> I'll just go wherever she takes me. She's, she's got such great taste and she's got oh, taste. it's, yeah, it, it, it's weird. It's so freaking lucky to have her. <laughs> And I, I'm just imagining being in a room with you and her and kind of welling up a little bit about, oh, <laughs> about that. It's going to be loud. So bring me <laughs> I'm here for it. So what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, every meal right now is emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my husband made kakaliki soup over the weekend and I cried. <laughs> so... Well, oh, I'll tell you, I had the most 
lovely dinner from this new restaurant in San Francisco called Voodoo Love. Mm. Um, this Creole inspired um, uh, restaurant. Um, uh, my pod mates and I ordered a meal together. My dear friend Shakira and I with her fiance on, we had the most delicious fried chicken with mm. the most delicious pineapple rice. And um, it just, what, what, it, what, it, what it brought up for me was just the resilience of our community. Yeah. And how, how kind and durable um, our friends are. Eva at Voodoo Love is such a giving soul. Um, and her food really exhibits it. You know, her blackened catfish, her fries. I just mowed through her fries. <laughs> My toes um, curled when you said blackened catfish. I'm just like, oh, I want that. Oh, <laughs> you know, you, you, I have to say a close second was my first COVID outdoor dining experience, <laughs> which was, um, you know, uh, at Miss Ollie's, which is this incredibly soulful restaurant in Oakland that's run by Sarah Kiernan, who by her own right is, who lives in a different realm. I mean, she's just a healer. And I just, uh, Sarah has mentored so many chefs and cooks in the Bay Area um, uh, through her time at Zuni and at um, the Front Porch. Um, she's one of a handful of very few openly queer Black female owners and chefs in not only the Bay Area, but in the country. And um, I just, I sat there and she served me the most delicious cucumber salad that mm. she um, recreated from a recipe she got from her aunt. And it was cucumber and um, red bell pepper and sitting in a, in a, in a sort of a shallow soup bowl with on a bed of ice water. Ooh. And so not only did you have the crispness, crispness of the vegetables, but you had like the refreshing temperature uh, of being like in this ice bath. And it was just the most simplistically elegant, like time machine. I felt like she sent me to Barbados and it <laughs> felt like I met her aunt. And I felt like she wrapped me in this giant blanket of love. Sarah, this is Sarah's food through and through is exactly that. Like, and just it's, it's, it's nourishment that transports you across generations. Oh my um, God. I wish I could teleport. <laughs> uh, and, you know, as, as, as I was leaving the restaurant that day, she um, gave me two fresh oak, okra pods as a gift, a parting gift. You know, I have a big okra tattoo on my arm, right? <laughs> well, I've been seeing these okra blossoms in your Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okra runs deep for me. Okra runs deep for um, Sarah um, and, and almost every Black American. Um, you know, they would weave um, seeds into their hair so that oh. they, could, they could take okra wherever they they migrated to we had a beautiful story in in a package uh 
in in 2020 where this fantastic writer Paul O. Mims uh, wrote about the Okra Project, but was talking, um, you know, specifically about that, like about the survival of okra and and you know how these strains came over and it it being this act of of defiance and 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 survival and pleasure. And also that the wisdom is intrinsic in our nature. Yeah. Right? That that growth is possible even if we're forced to migrate. Even if we're forced to leave what a place that we we thought once was safe because we're seeking um, an, another environment that's safer. I think about that Warson Shire piece about um, uh, refugees, which it's an incredible poem that everyone should read. Like, you don't leave your home until it feels unsafe. Mm. And so we really have to reimagine our relationship to why people migrate um, and why this current moment is the right time to expedite pathways of citizenship for all of the immigrants who make it possible for us to eat and feed each other in America particularly the undocumented farm, farm workers who make up 60 to 70% of farmhands in California and 20% of restaurant labor. And so, you know, Sarah gifted me this okra as sort of um, uh, a reminder that she, what, I, that I can carry her with me wherever I go. Oh. And I just, I'm, I, I'm so deeply grateful for her. I just love that. And we will um, put it, 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 make sure that folks know who she is and put that in, in the show notes, because that's really powerful and beautiful. And, uh, you know, this, this next question, like I've, ha- I've kind of had to revise it because, you know, I know it's getting, you know, going to other people's houses and stuff. I used to ask like, what's the last meal that somebody made for you in their home? But because, you know, I, I, I've, I've reframed it a little bit more because that's almost too painful a question right now. Um, what is the, the restaurant meal that you are most looking forward to when, uh, when things are safe, when we can eat indoors, what is this thing you want to, uh, you know, either return to or experience for the first time? You know, it's funny. It's not the meal that I care about. It's the people. Yeah. I look forward to the, time when it feels safe to hug everyone oh god (laughs) yes you know like i just like that that to me feeds me more than a dish or or cocktail or a restaurant space like i i like my friend matt grip at blackbird the other night i i was walking home and i he was the owner of this bar that's been a an anchor in san francisco for over a decade can you imagine Investing all this time and energy into a space, and then doing every you, everything you can to keep it on life support. Yeah. And I walked in and I said, "I don't know, just make me something and put it in an apothecary bottle, and I'm going to take it with me." <laughs> and he made me the most delicious mezcal paloma. Oh my god, I love mezcal. I love palomas. That sounds perfect. And for me, the thing itself isn't the thing, right? The thing is like Matt. The thing is like seeing Matt and seeing his devotion to his dream, his the the dream that has made it possible for him to become a father of a young girl and the husband to a wife. 
And I, you know, like what I look forward to most, the, the, the quote unquote meal I look forward to most is just like acknowledging this devotional quality in, in all of our peers and colleagues in the restaurant industry um, by hugging them and handshaking them and fist bumping them and hoot, hooting and hollering with them. <laughs> um, and the, the food itself is like secondary. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but it's not a bad thing either. <laughs> oh, no. Every, yeah. Everyone, I, everyone makes delicious food, but what makes it more delicious and memorable yeah. is the feeling that, you know, like I, I just like, I miss Krista Chase's food. Uh, I miss um, Lawrence Jossel's food, you know, I just, and, and I can get some of it, you know, to yeah. go, but part of their food is them. Yeah. Part of the magic is them. That, that smile, that sort of like, especially when they're in the weeds and they look up and you see a genuine like ear to ear smile because they're so happy <laughs> that like, you know, I miss Nick Bala's food. I miss, I miss Courtney Burns. But more importantly, I miss their their jovial nature and their their genuine um, affection and gratitude that like you're taking a chance by walking into their space. Yeah. And you just know you have that feeling of safety. You know you're going to be taken care of. Yeah. And that you should like, like release your belt by a notch. You know? <laughs> Is gonna wear wear loose clothing, settle oh, on in. Waistbands for life. <laughs> I've been wearing caftans. It's it's been uh, or as as Kushbu says, uh, work pajamas. I wear a lot of work, <laughs> work pajamas, <laughs> and I was wearing that even before all of this happened. So, what uh, living musician would you want to uh, cook or pour for, and uh, what would you serve them? Um, does it have to be like someone I don't know? <laughs> oh, no, it can be like this music that's been sustaining you. What do you want to give back? You know who I miss? I miss serving Tracy Chapman. Oh, wow. She's a San Francisco resident. And um, she's a regular at the grocery store, at a number of restaurants that um, my friend's have operated in the past and just I love her smile I I can't wait to deliver a plate to Tracy Chapman again oh I hear this Tracy Chapman please somebody tell Tracy Chapman this <laughs> we're talking about a revolution here <laughs> I think you have to say this stuff out loud for it to, to happen. And that, this way she gets to look forward to it too. And I think that's a lovely thing. I mean, oh, I just love that so much. And I love I have... her so much. I swear to God, every time I like, I get really like, I just, I have so much love for uh, Tracy's body of work. I love so much um, her, um, the assuredness of, her music and the storytelling of her words and the um, resonance of her, her voice. And just, she is such a groundbreaking artist in so many ways. And that she, for so many years, was such a regular community member. She like, she shared space with so many people. And I just, her and Boss Gags, 
Boss gags. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody has mentioned Boss Gags on this before. Boz and his wife Dominique are are the kindest people, and they also. Um, Boz has a recording studio in San Francisco in the Mission, I think, and so he and Dominique would eat eat in the Mission a lot, and it was just always so nice to see, Boz and Dominique. They're just the kindest people and really curious and playful. Boz actually owns a vineyard um, that um, that provides fruit to. Um, Matt Nauman and um, Audra Chapman, who who make wines under a label called Newfound Wines, um, and yeah, so you, it's such a small little world. But I can't I can't wait to see Boz and Dominique too. Oh, that's I'm gonna listen to some Boz gags tonight. <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> and I have a final question that I feel like you'll have a really good answer to. If you have five uninterrupted minutes for self care, what do you do? Mm. five uninterrupted minutes for self-care. And I ask this with the notion that, you know, that's all people have. Sometimes they might be, you know, they have a five minute break, they have a whatever. So nothing that's too sort of like intimidating that they have to slip into uh, or that they have to, you know, you know, get into and get out of, but something that they can do kind of, kind of quickly for a reset. Um, read a poem mm, got a suggestion yeah um anything by audrey lord mm-hmm. or june jordan or sonia sanchez yeah i would i would read i would read a poem by one of those three incredible writers i think that's really lovely i've been doing a lot of reading poetry during this time. I'll send you a few okra poems that I've read. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, you know, and Hey, that <laughs> sort of knits the threads together, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of great, uh, food poetry out there, especially by Mr. Kevin Young, whose work I always greatly appreciate. And, uh, we've, we've actually in the past, uh, year or so, um, run a couple of poems on foodandwine.com and I'm really hoping to be able to do some more of that in the, the coming up time. Poetry is perfect. It's, it's, I just expand your understanding of what language can do. It's so, I mean, the, yeah, I can't even capture it, but it's just such a beautiful way to, like, like Grace Lee Boggs says, like reimagine what's possible. I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for everything. I love you, my friend. I love you right back. Thank you so much to our guest today, Vinnie Ang. I know we went on for a long time, could have gone on for twice as long. I just, my soul feels better when I talk to Vinnie and I hope that your life was, or even just your day, your hour improved by hearing this fantastic man's voice and thoughts and heart. And in the show notes, you can find links to the SF New Deal, to the incredible uh, essay that he wrote about empathy and restaurant workers, and just to all things Vinny. He is so 
worth following. I know that he's going to lead us all to a better place. So thank you so much for listening to... <laughs> ah, babbling! Thank you so much for listening to Communal Table, and thank you incredibly much, as always, to our producer, Antara Sinha, who just puts up with all my verbal uh, babbling and all that kind of stuff and makes this podcast happen every week. And thank you so much to Sarah Crowder for always putting together fantastic images for it as well. Like I said, this is part of Food and Wine Pro, which is the part of Food and Wine uh, online, in the magazine, someday again in real life, where we focus on the stories about people in the industry and what they're going through right now. And you know, people can find solidarity, they can find solutions. It is all there for you. Foodandwine.com slash FWPro. And if you don't want to have to go looking for it, you can sign up for the Food and Wine Pro newsletter, which just pops into your inbox on Friday, ideally, sometimes Saturday. If we don't have it all together, it's fine. This is just life these days. Um, sign up for it and you'll get weekly wisdom from our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis. And uh, Osette Butber, our associate restaurant editor, gets together some fantastic links of all the news you need to know about in the industry this week. You'll find the link to the latest podcast. And it's just, a, a, you know, a really good place to uh, be in touch with what is happening in the industry. And you know what? We also want to hear from you. If there's somebody who you think we really should be talking to for this podcast or for any stories, I'm pretty easy to find. Kat.Kinsman at foodandwine.com or find me on Twitter at Kitten with a whip. And you know what also helps is, um, you know, I love doing this podcast and I, I think we all enjoy doing it and it uh, makes a great case for us to continue. If you can, you know, share with a friend or wherever you get your podcast, leave stars and reviews and all that kind of stuff. It helps more people find us and lets us keep having these conversations that we really love to do. And I so appreciate your feedback on this. None of this happens without um, the great, great restaurant community and people who listen to this podcast and read the stories. So thank you so much for that. And I want you to be good to yourself until the next time we talk. And I'm going to kick it over to Kelsey Youngman for this week's mantra. Take it away, Kelsey. Hello there. I'm Kelsey, the Associate Food Editor, and I'm here with a mantra. Breathe in, offer out. Gratitude, rest, movement, joy, connection, even breath itself. These all fuel us, restore us, and help to heal us. So as we make space for them in our own lives, breathe them deeply in. Let us similarly offer them out. As we rest, create opportunities for others to rest. As we connect with our loved ones, check in on those who are isolated. As we breathe, how can we ensure others are safe too as well? What in your life sustains and invigorates you? And how can you share it with others? May you be safe and well. <laughs>